Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal in the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Manrat, and today on Streams of Progress, I'm joined by Faris Ghandour and Khaled Talhouni, partner and managing partner at Wamda Capital. During the discussion, we covered Wamda's growing role in the MENA startup ecosystem and the ever-evolving investment philosophy behind their fund. So join us as we dive into the conversation. We're sitting down with Faris Ghandour, partner at Wamda Capital, and Khaled Talhouni, the managing partner of Wamda Capital. Thanks for hosting me in your offices. Anytime. Welcome. Thanks for coming. So before we get into what you guys are doing here, I want to get a bit about your backgrounds. So if we start with you, Faris, if you can tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Right. I've actually been working with Wamda for a long time. I think it's been five years now, four or five years. I started out with Wamda doing just ops and events for our flagship mentorship event called Mix and Mentor. At the time, I would hop in and out of just working on a, a small fund that the Wanda platform had. It was a 2 or $3 million fund, and it was just very basic kind of seed stage investments that I would just dabble with a little bit just to get myself familiar with. And as Wanda the platform grew, and that's you know what we do in the platform is all the media and, and the event stuff, I got into Mina Venture Investments, which is a predecessor fund to Wanda Capital. And I took over as investment manager there from a colleague of ours, Walid Fazar, who's, who's also a partner at the fund. And from there, I moved to Dubai and started doing a little bit of work on Wanda Capital a year, a year and a half after we launched, which was in 2015. And now I'm partner at the fund. And yeah, that's that's my background. And just your education, you went yeah. to USC? Right? I did. Yeah. I went to USC. I did international relations there as an undergrad. I wanted to do a music industry as my major. For one reason or another, I just ended up sticking with international relations. I did work in the in the music business right after, so I was doing licensing and sales for a record label in Beirut. But for the most part, most of my career has been with, with Wamda one way or another. So. And your work with Mina Venture Investments, that was back in Beirut? So Mina Venture Investments um, launched about the same time that Wamda launched. Wamda launched in 2011. That's separate to what Wamda Capital did at the, the Wamda time. The Wamda platform, right? Yeah, the Wamda platform, which is Wamda.com, the media arm, and... and uh, some conferences and events as well. Mina Venture Investments launched about that same time, so 2010. And the idea there was to just uh, uh, spread out a bunch of investments in the region, do two to 250K check tickets across a portfolio of 70 to 75 companies that really mostly, you know, our colleague Walid Fazar, you know, helped deploy. I took over once we were almost fully deployed. We just had two or three million left of deployment out of Beirut initially. But then um, I, I almost instantly had to move to Dubai because that's where the ecosystem was. The ecosystem had maybe in the region started out as being Levant- Levantine. But as Dubai picked up on the vibe that this is where you scale, this is an easier place to get to Saudi, they started you know, really sub- significantly subsidizing uh, rent, licensing costs, so it became more of a launch hub. So to deploy the remainder of our capital, it was natural for me to move to Dubai and, and, and do that out of here. And that served as a predecessor. Yeah, uh, a lot of the investments that we did out of Wamda Capital are follow-on investments in what we had done out of Mina Venture Investments. And we worked out of the same office, and, and so it was just a natural, I guess, next step. Khaled, if we can switch to you, 
if you can tell us a bit about your background. Sure, yeah. So I, um, I'll start in reverse. So I, uh, I, I went to Duke University in the U.S. I majored in, I think my choice of majors just shows how confused I was, and maybe continue to be confused, but I, I majored in economics, and my other major was in history, and I minored in Slavic languages and literature. I have no actual like background in like I have no personal connection to Eastern Europe or this like the Slavic world. But it was something I was interested in at the time. Um, I think for most of my peer group, coming out of particularly the economics track at that time, the the traditional path was to go into investment banking. Uh, that was sort of the more du jour kind of um, career track at the time. It was right before the crisis. Today. I think most people of that kind of within that cohort would probably go into management consulting, but but that was kind of the traditional route. I I kind of had some interactions on the on the investment banking side while I was an undergraduate, and I absolutely hated it. I thought it, yeah I had absolutely no interest in pursuing that. Um, so I sort of waffled around during my senior year, and I was thinking about what to do next. The thinking was, you know, when in doubt, just go to law school. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll come out, maybe I'll do something for a year or two and then go to law school while I study for the LSATs. I'll, I'll just be productive. So um, by sheer coincidence, I have an uncle who lives here in Dubai. And I said, you know, maybe it'd be good to experience something different. So I left the U.S. And when was this? What year? This was is 2007. So I, you know, I, I, I left the U.S. really with no plan uh, and no kind of clear career path. Um, and I ended up in Dubai, just open to doing whatever. Um, and then just one thing led to another, where I met Walid Hanna, who's the who's now the um, MVP. He's the he's the founder of MVP. And at the time, uh, there was a private equity firm called Dubai International Capital, which was part of Dubai Holding, actually, um, that was looking at setting up a angel uh, seed fund, basically. Uh, alongside an angel network to entice and kind of attract or incent uh, private investors to invest in early stage companies. Um, so I ended up joining Walid and putting that together, really. Um, I had no particular background in, uh, you know, in, in entrepreneurship. I was interested. Um, I kind of dabbled in it a little bit while I was in college and right after. But then I, uh, I, 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 I joined at the time to kind of help put this together. And ended up being the region's first sort of seed fund. Um, this was very early, so this predates all kind of the interesting companies that have come up since, right? The, at the time, the only kind of company of note that was of any substance was Maktoub and was already well on its way towards an exit. Um, so I really fell into this purely by, by coincidence. And, you know, fast forward 10 years... That's all I've ever done is kind of work with entrepreneurs in different ways, primarily on the kind of corporate finance, on the investment side. Uh, I've done a few other stuff in my different roles, but it's really just focused on, on startups, on entrepreneurs, and, 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 and helping to build that ecosystem in the region. Uh, from, from the IC, I joined Accelerator Technology Holdings, which became Silicon Badia, which is another kind of early stage fund. Uh, from there, I went to 244, where I headed strategy and investments. And really, the, the, the main remit I had there was around investing in media, media tech, with quite a broad definition, but um, early stage companies within that general field. Um, 
uh, and uh, and to kind of help propel that forward. I also did a lot of kind of strategy work, some JVs, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was um, it was definitely interesting. And then about four and a half years ago, um, I was speaking to Fadi about like you know I was thinking about moving on and doing something new. I was thinking potentially going down the entrepreneurship route or you know doing something different. Um, and then on the back of that conversation, um, I joined Wanda to help set up the fund. Uh, the, the first iteration. Yeah, the first iteration, the first kind of institutionalized fund where we fundraise from third parties. So we were successful in attracting uh, IFC, which is part of the World Bank, to be our anchor investor. Uh, we also were able to, to, to raise uh, capital from another 27 other LPs. So we were quite fortunate being able to do that and really demonstrating that we were able to put a thesis together um, and convince investors that there's a viable um, there's a viable asset class within within venture. Uh, remember at the time this was 20. So when I joined it was probably towards the end of um, 2013, right? And the, the ecosystem was still quite nascent. You didn't have the big success stories you have today. So um, uh, so we were so so as I, I look forward towards what we've, what we've come to today it's been a massive almost seismic shift in in just the nature of entrepreneurship in the region in the nature of um, the types of opportunities we see the, the how big companies get how uh, how how we've attracted a lot of global attention to our ecosystem as well so it's been like actually I like to say that the last four years of of my career at WAMDA have equaled, have, you know, the, the, I can't even compare them to the years before because before it was quite, it was still really early, we were still kind of trying to kind of evangelize for the viability of the whole thing. But now, I mean, you see great businesses emerging, you see companies, you see this, there's kind of a, a real energy that, that's never existed before and, and it's just increasing. So um, we're quite, uh, I'm personally quite happy with what, what's been going on. So uh, and I think we see everything happening at an accelerated rate. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, people now know, people who used to be angels are now maybe partners of VCs. People who were the startup founders are now investors. So they've all been through right. the tracks and now... I think, yeah, the, the rate of change is just exponential. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Like when we started the fund, um, the in our launch year, so a year after we kind of set up, we... We typically see all that's come through the, the the ecosystem, so we see all pipeline. Basically, we don't miss anything because, well, a because of our like platform activities, but also because um, the ecosystem is quite small. So, and there are very few sources of funding, so people come to us. Um, and we saw about three hundred companies. You know, fast forward to last year, uh, in twenty seventeen, we would have seen two thousand companies. Um, so you, you and, and these are viable businesses, businesses that fit our mandate. Uh, the you know the businesses within the sectors that we look at. So there is a kind of a, an increased pace, an increased rate of change in just comp- people setting up companies, um, and for, and for those companies to, to generate traction to be able to move forward. So we're so we're quite happy about that. Like we we feel like we've made the um, the right bet in kind of like pursuing this. 
Well, okay, let's transition to Wamda since we already started going into it. Uh, where does the name come from? So I wasn't there for when, when the name came up, but uh, means it means spark in Arabic. It means spark. Okay. It's a great name, but I think it was just some branding agency that was hired that came up with the name, to be it's, honest. Because it's memorable as well. I mean, as a yeah. non-Arab I, I speaker as well, a, you can it's remember. A great it name, works yeah. in all languages, transliterates yeah. well, right? Like it works, so I think. So yeah, it's a great, great brand. And I think there's a lot of value that's been built in the brand over the years as a force for good in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So what would you say is the, the driving mission of Walmda? I mean, I know it started as the platform, so that probably has a mission as well, but I feel the, the Walmda Capital's mission as well is probably aligned with what the platform was doing. It's taking it to the next step, right? I, I think broadly speaking, it's money and meaning, profit and purpose, right? How do we help drive growth um, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem um, to help solve kind of wider questions in the region. And we do that kind of through commercial means, particularly on the, on the fund side. Um, so th- I think that's a kind of overarching, overarching mission is that we believe in the power of entrepreneurship to enable the individual to seize their economic destiny. Um, and our role really is to how do we enable that, how do we support and facilitate that um, and 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 the, the the logical conclusion of that is to kind of address some of the deeper issues that afflict the region. You know, um, uh, unemployment, job creation, uh, the ability of um, uh, economic diversification, economic growth, uh, and then from there you can it can go on to kind of like the social issues that ha- that helps address. But it, you can tie the thread through from enabling entrepreneurship to enable the individual to um, achieve their, uh, their their economic promise. And I think when you say enabling entrepreneurship, the platform itself serves as educating people in the region who might not be entrepreneurs to learn more about what was happening, what, what's going on in communities. There was the, the mix and mentor you mentioned. There, there was a lot of activities going on to push people towards enabling themselves or pushing yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah, I think just to add to that a little bit as well, we're tending to think of ourselves more and more now as, as a platform in general, as a group. So not really, you know, speaking of certain initiatives as platform initiatives versus uh, what we do as the fund. And the reason for that is uh, it's multifold, but it's at, at the fundamental level, I think if you look at, you know, the way things are in the region, the ecosystem is nascent. Um, there aren't many, or at least when we started out, there weren't many players covering the various aspects of the ecosystem. So the the advocacy, highlighting, media aspect, the the advisory aspect, the events, um, even the funding stuff. It's not like you know we were you know the fund was parachuted in to a mature ecosystem that that was dependable in the sense that you know there was pipeline there and it was. Was an obvious kind of ecosystem that was that was there to be capitalized on. We had to kind of uh, build the different aspects of the ecosystem so that we we have a powerful enough brand uh, off of which we're able to raise uh, a fund, uh, which is where most of our upside lies. So that's why we tend to think of ourselves as a group because everything is interlinked. A lot of the pipeline that comes to the fund is through the brand, and a lot of the brand is through what we do outside of what what the fund does. Um, but also to Khalid's point, um, I think entrepreneurship here is is you know has has by definition kind of a social implication in the sense that 
um, you know, economic empowerment at, at the individual level and reducing dependence on traditional uh, employment streams like government, state, um, or larger kind of corporates or family offices is, uh, is, is, is kind of doing the region a favor kind of thing in the sense of diversifying our economies, reducing dependence on uh, uh, rentier states, so to speak. And, and so by definition, um, doing that necessarily, you know, investing for capital upside is, is a much more uh, sustainable way and um, economically incentivizing way to, to empower the ecosystem. Um, so I think the fund was a natural progression to what the platform was doing in that sense. Um, otherwise, we would have been leaving an opportunity on the table. I think you kind of hit upon my next question. How do you differentiate yourself from a traditional VC? And you kind of hit upon it now about the platform. Yeah, I'm happy to take that unless Khaled wants to. Yeah, I'll start off and then we can talk about our new offering. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the, the, the nature of capital and the role of capital within um, the entrepreneurial ecosystem is changing. And the nature of financing is changing generally. It's driven by many many different forces globally it's not it's not a, just a local phenomenon i mean there there is a there's a bet here that that is going to change faster in emerging markets than in the developed world but, but i think the, just to kind of speak a little bit about the forces that are disrupting capital i think you know if you think about the fund business model it's really an intermediary between where capital comes from right lps in our case and where capital is is demanded, which is at the entrepreneur level or at the firm level, the role of the fund manager or the fund is really just to kind of operate as a to kind of plug that gap in information asymmetry um, and to kind of oversee the process of that transaction. I think you're going to see, and we've been talking about this a lot uh, in public, how the um, uh, the nature of that business model is changing very quickly. I think information is more readily available as to who are the companies that should be funded, right? You look at platforms like AngelList, it's just the tip of the iceberg of how that's going to change. And the process of, of financing is changing in ways that we don't know how that's going to end up. So, you know, the, the kind of blockchain revolution is just also the tip of, of, of the iceberg in the sense that it's going to totally reshape the way we think about finance, right? Um, the end result of which we don't know. I mean, it could be different ways. So given those shifting forces, or driving forces rather, um, the, the, you know, our business model has to adapt to that as well. And I think what's incredibly unique about WOMDA um, is that we don't see ourselves necessarily as a fund per se. We see ourselves, as, as Faris alluded to earlier, a wider pl platform upon which we serve many st stakeholders. The key stakeholder we serve, our key client is the entrepreneur, right? And we help serve that entrepreneur in different ways. The first is capital, because the entrepreneurs need capital. But the other is through mentorship, through support, through building the wider ecosystem, and then through serving other stakeholders like governments, like corporates, or also building that meshed network needed to build the ecosystem as a whole. And then as that ecosystem develops, we position ourselves as investors in that ecosystem in different ways and as providers and solution providers for that ecosystem. How we do that, I think we're now just beginning to rethink um, how best we can um, fulfill on those objectives through offering new sorts of uh, products and services that help really tackle 
the issues faced by the by by the different stakeholders that we interact with. And I think Faris has been working very hard on rethinking that, and he can tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think just to continue off what Khaled was saying, it's, you know, it's a bit ironic that the the main driver of the closing gap of this information, the information gap effectively, the asymmetry that existed is a, a child of venture capital, which is the internet. So at least the, the applications that ride on top of the internet are a result of a lot of venture financing. Uh, but that tool in and of itself is a driving force against venture capital in, in its traditional sense. Uh, so that's that's a little bit ironic. Now, I think um, to what Khalid was saying about how we continue to differentiate ourselves, we've always been or always thought of ourselves as first movers. And to that end, being a first mover uh, played its role um, when we had first started out by way of having a media platform and just covering and highlighting what's going on in the ecosystem in general. Now, that the way that evolved is that um, you have plenty of, of, you know, in hindsight, you you look back and you say, okay, Wanda might have been the first, uh, but there's plenty of others now. We, we certainly don't necessarily do it the best, but, but there's plenty of others out there now. The fund as well, especially the, 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 the seed fund, so Mina Venture Investments, but as well as, as Wanda Capital, were one of the first funds, and at the time, 2015, when we closed, it was a $70 million fund. It was one of the largest in the region. So as total AUM, uh, you know, as, as a fund manager, we had more than anyone else that had cross-border uh, mandate in, in MENA. So, so we've always been a step ahead. Now, if, if, you know, being a step ahead doesn't create perpetual differentiation unless, uh, unless you keep rolling out new stuff. We looked back and said, there are, you know, we have a media platform, but there's other media platforms. We have events, but there's other events. We've got a fund, but there's other funds. We've got access, but that's temporary, then that, that brand has, has a bit of competition. So we looked back and we said, you know, what, is it, what, is, what are we really investing in fundamentally? And, and really what we're investing in fundamentally is, is companies, yes, that are fast growing, yes, but uh, they're primarily, you know, growing fast and they're able to achieve uh, exponential growth as a result of solid teams, mature teams who are in place, who understand the market dynamics, who have industry expertise, but are also cognizant of what it is in that industry that needs to be disrupted, how that that uh, uh, you know traditional business models need to be disrupted, and and have a good knack for. Uh, you know, uh, you know, have hunger and have a good knack for building a good uh, operating team around them that where they share kind of seniority with others and and are able to build scalable business models. So, having said that, we looked back and we said we're really, you know, the one thing that's in common between all successful companies and one thing that's in common between successful companies within our uh, portfolio is good founding teams or good management teams. So, if we take that and we say, right, we want to extend that, and and a good management team is a good management team regardless of when you catch them you you're able to or identify them you don't necessarily have to identify a good prospective founder once they've already you know scaled and and want to raise series b or c you can identify someone who's got the right ingredients uh early on and so we said you know the a good way to continue to create differentiation by way of pipeline is 
is build a, a much more breadth and depth to what we do. So breadth, uh, meaning extending a little bit geographically. So we've we've uh, out of you know out of our first fund, we've deployed some money in Turkey. We'll continue to do that in a much bigger way. Uh, we've done some investments in in East Africa. We'll continue to do that in a much bigger way, and maybe a little bit of Pakistan uh, in a much bigger way. So in in breadth, it allows us to capture a much wider set of the the, the emerging market ecosystem that's near. You know that's within a five-hour range from Dubai, and in depth. Um, uh, so being able to capture not just companies at the Series A and B level, which is where most of the competition is today, but really capture them from even pre-ideation. Uh, you know, capture prospective founders from before they even decide they want to found a company on the basis that they would make for good founders. Finance them, and don't throw them out when demo day comes you actually are able to finance them all the way through Series B and potentially C. So it gives them a very significant cushion. And you throw some programming in there with that, and, and you know there you go. That, that's the right ingredient for what you would call an accelerator. But it's going, to be, it's going to have a bit of a twist in the sense that it's going to be a grants-based accelerator. Um, and I don't want to get into that too much because we're just identifying the details. But we are in the process of putting that together where we're investing in founders or prospective founders rather than investing in businesses with business models and business plans uh, and you know in hopes that our assumption that the founders are the driving force behind successful companies will hold as that as that business or prospective business continues to scale so we differentiate ourselves and continue to differentiate ourselves in, in the breadth and depth of what we do and continuing to show our own investors that we've got access that they won't be able to get necessarily themselves or that we create, so pipeline that we co-create, uh, or by, by way of just ge- geographic diversification that, that no other investor has, at, you know, of, of our nature has in the region. So. so when you say it's about the founders... And not really about their idea or their business model. It's really about the team, the the well, people who would execute. Yeah, there, I think there's like a few factors. Uh, the founders are, are the biggest. Another is market size. So you have, you could have a great prospective founder, but they're just going after a very niche market, and that would that would be a turnoff for us. So there's got to be a meaningful market uh, market size. And, and we've identified a few trends and industries that that are that really are ripe for disruption. Khalid's been effectively the longest standing venture investor. I I think in the region I can't think of anyone else who's been actively working at a venture fund in the region longer than Khalid or maybe just as long so he's seen that trend shift maybe um, over time so he, he can give you a bit more color as to what we look for when we're investing industry-wise and sector-wise maybe. The way you were saying and the way you were talking about it how you want to enable entrepreneurs who don't even know they're entrepreneurs, I guess, at yeah. this point. I, I feel that... We could be that, very wrong, by the way. Who knows? Yeah, but I feel that uh, that's aligned with kind of what the government is trying to push. And I think... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Where? Here in the UAE? The UAE or Dubai. Specifically, I think you guys are partners with Area 2071. Yeah, so... And they have that vision of... Yeah, we're, we're engaged. I think, you know, I spoke a little bit earlier about how our strategy is to engage with the different stakeholders in the wider community. The core is obviously entrepreneurs, but then the, the others are corporates and governments. So we're engaged with governments in a multitude of different ways, both in the UAE but across the region, either in an advisory capacity where we you know, support different uh, innovation or entrepreneurship-related programs, uh, or we help publish research with, with these types of partners. 
uh, or where we help activate spaces. So our engagement area 27 is around activating the space. We've held a number of events there. Um, and, you know, we're very happy to see um, the different government bodies in the UAE react very positively to the need to kind of help support entrepreneurs in, 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 in these, with these different initiatives. So wherever there are initiatives like that, driven by government or others, we're always keen to be supportive of that. Because ultimately our objective is to help you know, build the entire network, like I said, so that we may find interesting ways to invest in it. If I may go back to your actual team at Womda Capital, what does your investment team tend to look like? Is it mostly active partners? Do you have a non-investment support team? How, how does the due diligence work within such an entity? I think Khalid can take that. Khalid, uh, again, has, has been in the ecosystem for so long that he's, he's taken the time to really build a team that's, that's very impactful. So I'll, I'll leave it to him to speak about what, what we've got. I think it relates to how we think of ourselves a little bit differently. So we're a team of about 13 today on the, fun, on the investment side. Um, and... We are four investing partners, effectively people who lead deals. Myself, Faris, uh, Walid, Faza, and uh, uh, Fadi, our founder, obviously Fadi Gandur. Um, and then beyond that, we started off looking more like a traditional VC. But as we as we developed, I think one of the core the core differentiators we we're looking to build out, and that's tied a little bit to the size of how our fund and how big and, and the size of our next fund, rather. Uh, is to really build out a, a dedicated, bespoke value creation team that is um, solely focused on supporting, um, supporting our companies uh, in specific subject matters. So today we have an operations expert, like a senior, very senior director level operations um, support resource, and he works with the companies around customer engagement, around how to build um, capacity within the underlying companies. And then we also have uh, another kind of logistics-related person, uh, someone with a logistics background, given we have, a concent- we have some of the construction and e-commerce in our portfolio. So we brought in someone with that particular focus as well. As we go forward, we're going to add a, a chief, uh, someone at CTO level to work with companies on technology and product. We're also going to bring on most likely someone who's, who's focused on uh, recruitment and HR, which is one of the big pain points within our companies. Um, and then we're also going to bring in a potentially a growth hacking resource, um, really someone focused on marketing, performance marketing, growth, etc. Um, the other kind of, how this all kind of fits together is that, you know, as we, as, as the wider platform takes shape, it should kind of mesh well. So to give you an example on the, recruit, the recruitment person we spoke about, I just mentioned. So um, we'll hold a lot of kind of community events. So some of those events might be, for example, focused on how to be a great technology lead. So it's open to the public as a whole. And maybe we do an event around, um, led by our you know, technology lead on the value creation team, on how to... Uh, how to optimize kind of product roadmap, for example, and we'll invite the community as a whole to attend. As part of that, we would, we would meet a lot of talent that could be interested in our company. So the idea is to kind of build that, that network in that way, driven by driving value, not just to our, communi- to our companies, but to the community as a whole. So that's kind of one tangible example I th- of, of what I mean. I think a lot of times we get bogged down in the abstract. I think this is one example of what we'd like to do. So I think... Um, 
to get back to your answer on the team, so we have you know, a number of people who lead transactions. Um, and then we have a dedicated value creation team whose sole responsibility is how do I drive value to the companies that we're involved in? And it's a, it's a pull model. It's, we don't push, we don't force anyone to do anything, right? It's for our entrepreneurs to kind of extract value where they want or you know, choose not to. I mean, that, that's fine also. Um, and then we have a sort of an associate and analyst pool that work on um, kind of supporting either the value creation team or the... Uh, or, or the va- or the investment team on kind of putting putting deals together. So the value creation team it's purely for your portfolio, but it has this ripple effect which actually touches the rest of the community. Exactly. Well, we're trying to do that. I mean, we're not there yet because this is all nascent, right? We're trying to kind of build this out. Uh, we're a bit constrained by resource, obviously, I mean, relatively in the grand scheme of things, relatively small fund, right? We manage seventy million dollars capital within this fund. <laughs> Uh, but as we build that out, I think you'll see that we'll be much more engaged on that side, much more engaged on the wider kind of uh, community support angle. And yes, yeah, so I think and we'll, we'll build more um, process into the team vis-a-vis, you know, the value creation is there to kind of help support companies, but also build them into the due diligence process. So you can identify up front, these are the key issues that the companies need to work on. Yeah, we're going to make a bet on these entrepreneurs. They probably need help in X, Y, Z. So um, how do we, um, from day one, engage that team to kind of get involved in that? These are all things we're working through, and it's not, it's not exactly... Um, it's, it's stuff that is evolving slowly, right? It's not kind of very cut and dry. We're still figuring out. We're figuring out a lot of stuff, actually. But. And going back to your partners, you said there's four active partners. Just wondering how your decision-making is done when, let's say, one of you come across something. Do you guys do a consensus model where all four have to agree or have a majority? Or do you have, like some VCs tend to have a sponsorship model where you say, I'll take the lead on this one. It's on me if it doesn't work out. It's a bit of both. So there has to be a sponsor for a deal. Um, that absolutely happens. I think we also have an investment committee that's external to the fund, which is unusual. Um, so we have to also convince an ex- investment committee that's not com- that's comprised not solely of the partners. Are they more from a finance background, or are they more? Can dive from- different, different. Some entrepreneurs, you know, they come from different. Are they the LPs? Or they, did they no, come they're not. The- they're not okay. the LPs. No. Okay. So which is also kind of like a bit of a different model. But I, I would say broadly, the way our decision making happens is quite informal, as you'll find in a lot of VCs. There's a sponsor for a deal, but then we work by consensus. I think. I can't see us doing a deal where one of the partners has a major issue, a very serious issue with the, with the deal. Um, it's not something that tends to happen. So it's a combination of both. There's a sponsor, but then there's small enough where you can, have cons- you can try to do things by consensus. And if we can just hit upon a few of the recent initiatives that we hear about what they're doing in the community. One was the fireside chats. I'm a fan of the fireside chats you guys sent to. Do you attend them? Do you come yeah, to them? Yeah, okay, awesome, yeah. The last one was really interesting. Yeah, you with the, the social the, capital? With Bates. Yeah, 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 that was a good one. Then the, you guys are involved with what, Marriott Testbed, I believe? Yes, And yes, then also yeah. Ficro Labs. So yeah. what I mean is these are engagements, corporate engagements, but you're activating innovation yeah. within them, if you can just touch upon what those are or what the objective of these are? So I think it, it all goes back to what we were speaking about earlier in the sense that we, we tend to think of ourselves as a group in general. We've got a very uh, a deep network 
across not just the MENA region, but just, just the wider tech community globally, I'd say, that allows us to tap, you know, uh, you know that we tap into to allow us to, uh, uh, to create programs and, and drive value to the ecosystem beyond what we're able to do with the fund. Uh, so the fireside chats are just kind of on a relatively ad hoc basis whenever there's someone we think worthwhile having you know, here at our office uh, or, or elsewhere to, to speak to some of the ecosystem. We think that's good. There's value and there's content to be extracted out of that that the ecosystem can benefit from. It positions us as thought leaders. So that's more on the fireside chats, the events, uh, and, and tapping into our network. With regards to what we do at the enterprise and government level, um, we, you know, they're, they're a very key factor and very key stakeholder in this ecosystem in the sense that um, they can really help accelerate a startup's track to success, um, especially if done right. So, the, you know, what, what we tend to do with, with partners like Marriott and like the partners at Fikra Labs. So Fikra Labs was an initiative, just to quickly sum that up, whereby we conducted a, a corporate acceleration program for four corporate partners in Abu Dhabi. So one was Etihad, Adnik, Miral, and DTC. So what we did for them is basically told, you know, they came to us and said, we want to engage startups. We're like, great, that's, that's music to our ears. Um, we created a program, a one-month acceleration program for them that we managed end-to-end, whereby each of those partners came up with a challenge. And, you know, the one common theme between those four partners is, is travel and tourism. And, you know, Abu Dhabi is very big on trying to push for travel and tourism within Abu Dhabi. So, um, so they each came up with their own challenge. And we shortlisted a few companies that, uh, you know, are, are ripe to, to solve that challenge, particularly for those companies, and took them through an acceleration program in Abu Dhabi. And the finalists got 100K worth of, of, uh, of investment um, in the form of a convertible note. So um, we continue to push for that program as a program, so corporate acceleration, uh, in parallel with what we're going to do ourselves, uh, you know, our own accelerator program. And we find that that's a very, very impactful and uh, a recurring way to get corporates to open up their internal, you know, in- internal teams, uh, processes, and resources to allow these startups that you know you know they're going to own equity and uh, potentially uh, uh, get access to and, and expedite their their path to success. So um, it's an impactful way to to engage a key stakeholder in the ecosystem. So we'll continue to push for that with with various other enterprise and government entities. Let's shift focus to your investment ethos and how that goes about. Is there any specific sector or industry you tend to focus on, or are you? As broad as possible. I, I think what we'd like to say is that in the past, and this is, again, one of the things that's constantly evolving. Up until this point, we've said the nature of the of pipeline, the region, even though it's increasing very quickly, is still quite small. You're talking about like thousands of companies. The, the order of magnitude is quite small. Um, so, and the nature of those companies is changing very, very, very quickly. Uh, faster even... I would say, in kind of more developed markets because we're able to kind of leapfrog certain segments. So um, for that reason, we tend to shy away from saying we have very specific sector focus and instead kind of take a broader view, led first by the idea that we invest in great teams and then 
and then we consider you know what the business model is or what the business is um, however in the past there are kind of a few emerging themes that came up on the back of that approach which we found to be quite interesting that we're, we're, we've developed a thesis around the first is fintech so we think there are lots of opportunities for fintech probably least well served by pipeline in the region and we think the next big thing will come out of that uh, and we can talk a lot about where and how, and but you know it's something that we're very actively engaged in. Second is you know e-commerce, particularly vertical e-commerce and marketplaces. We think you know there's going to be a massive shift of from of retail from offline to online and into omni-channel, where the lines start blurring very quickly. So we're really interested in that. We've also invested in content in a big way. We think that it's an under um, the the region's content landscapes underdeveloped. Uh, across the board, video, written, you name it. Yeah, for the population size, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, whether that's creative... I mean, there's, like, there's a whole, you know, plethora of, like, theses to be developed on the back of that. And then last but not least, and I, they were, the reason why I name it last is B2B and enterprise, so SaaS. I think there's definitely opportunities for localized offerings Very across the board. Very niche. But the nature of corporates, there aren't that many actually corporates in the region, interestingly enough. Like there aren't that many medium, medium to large sized enterprises in general that are local, right, compared to other regions of the world. So it's sort of a less of a focus from the pipeline in the past, but it's, it's something that we're interested in. But going forward, I think we will end up having more of a specialization in certain areas, especially as we broaden the geography slowly, as we start looking at, into sub-Saharan Africa, we'll start kind of looking at sectors more deeply. Um, and there just becomes sort of natural pattern recognition on the back of that. Uh, I think what we'd ideally like to do is rather than be reactive investors, be assertive investors. And we're not there yet, so we try to think like that, but would, we need a lot of work to get there, which is to say... Um, we believe there's an opportunity in X. And we've built a thesis around why we think an opportunity in X exists. Let's go find a company that does that. I think now we're kind of like a bit of a hybrid where we do build some theses, but really it's much more about um, reacting to pipeline and building a thesis around pipeline. Or just pipeline generally. If we see 20 companies in this area. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Why, why are we seeing 20, 30 companies that do X? This sort of kind of intuitively makes sense. Oh, let's go spend like a month thinking through this and come back. But there's a better way to do it, which is to kind of preempt it. And again, I mean, just to kind of tie the thread back to this kind of platform concept, I mean, that research, effectively, that we do that thinking is something we want to give parts of it back to the community. So we publish that research and say, look, this is our thinking on, you know, alternative lending, for example. This is our thinking on vertical e-commerce or white-label e-commerce, whatever, right? So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of integration within that that we're thinking about. But that, that, I mean, to go back to your question, it's, you know... There are certain segments. There's, there are certain segments that we find interesting. We want to be more assertive in how we build in, uh, frameworks that interest us um, rather than be reactive. Um, but there'll always be some elements of us having to be reactive to how quickly the market changes. The market changes very, very quickly. Um, so uh, it's something for just for us to be aware of as well, not to be overly dogmatic about what we invest in. Just touching upon what Faris mentioned earlier was that you're slowly starting to also scale the region, right? So you're doing 
investments in Turkey now in yeah. in Eastern Africa. Tur- Turkey has been one of our best markets. Actually, some of our greatest companies have come out of Turkey. Inside so you're actually expanding the footprint of one of those investment portfolio. Typically, what's the investment size you look at? Is it a earlier stage investment? Is it Series A? And what what size is that? Within this current fund, we have two envelopes. The first is the seed envelope, so up to 500k as we define seed from our ticket, a round size of up to a million, two million, you know, that's seed for us. And then Series A is the other major part of the envelope, which is the, or the larger envelope, which is to do two to three million dollars first check. Um, Then the other kind of key underlying thought within our ticket size is the importance of doing successive rounds of financing. So the follow-on, you will actually participate in your own. Yeah, so that's kind of key, and that takes us up to Series B. So as part of the second fund, I think we'll do a lot more of Series B, depending on the final fund size. Um, we think of it more in terms of that successive round of financing than about having seed, or this is the average we do. It's much more about being able to take companies through multiple rounds of financing. Um, and then, you know, the stuff that Faris is working on, you start even going earlier. So cap- capturing at the ideation stage, at the f- team formation stage. Um, it's really just about kind of completing that that cycle of financing up to a point. We think it's necessary. So the beginning of the pipeline all the way. That's not to say we'll only invest companies that come through one, two, three, four stages. We find it to be quite an important differentiator to be able to take companies through multiple stages of financing because there's no capital in the region. There's a lot of interest. But in reality, you know, it's still one of the most undercapitalized parts of the world, right? You know, I was looking the other day, I think even Sub-Saharan Africa is, is comparable, which you wouldn't think. Really? Yeah. There's a lot of kind of capital floating around. A lot of it masquerades as grant financing and stuff like that, but yeah. Earlier you were mentioning, in terms of your pipeline, initially you were seeing maybe 300. Yeah, three, four years ago. Three, four years ago. But now, last year you said 2,000? Almost 2,000. And what percentage of those convert, or would you say you guys follow through with? Well, last year invested in seven companies, so. So less than 1%? Less than 1%. What do you say is a takeaway you've seen as an investor for the inbound. So you said you saw 2,000, yet you only chose less than 1%. What do you think was the takeaway from that? Was it a lot of them are just too premature, they don't have the right fit, or just they weren't right for you guys? What do you think, Faris, was the main, main reason we turned people down? <laughs> I think we just don't have enough money. <laughs> so you liked a lot of them, actually? I, th- I think, look, we speak about this a lot. So when we first raised our fund, it was 2015, there was probably total venture money of two, three hundred million up to four hundred million in the region, depending on what you want to count. I think come end of 2018, maybe mid-2019, you're going to easily have ready to be deployed or under management, you know, actually ready to be deployed, probably a capital of upwards of a billion and a half. And that's great. And as a, as if you look at it objectively, it's it's you know, it's a, it's a good metric, the ecosystem is growing, but what also is growing and, and what's key to also focus on is is the demand side. So you can grow that number as much as you want, but if the demand side of qualified founders and, and teams that are raising is also growing, then that number almost becomes meaningless. And if that number, and in fact, it, it could it could be a bad thing because if if there's more and more qualified companies that are raising, but but you know the total amount of venture money is is not growing as fast, then you have a bit of a problem. Uh, thankfully, there's a lot of, as you said, you know, government initiative and just large corporate led um, uh, kind of initiatives that are 
helping uh, drive capital to to the region. I think you know the the Amazon acquisition of Sue is one. Noon, the announcement of Noon, regardless of what happens to it, is one because it shows old money going to this. A lot of what uh, you know the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is doing in Saudi is you know pointing the arrow towards or pointing his finger, sorry, towards. Uh, you know, econom- economic diversification by way of, of enabling startups. So, so you have a lot of qualified founders that are raising um, that we'd love to invest in. Um, that we either, you know, we either don't get to invest in for one reason or another, or, um, or honestly, you know, of late we've been seeing more and more qualified companies that we hear of after they've raised that we would have probably liked to participate in potentially, but we just never saw. So to Khaled's point on being more uh, assertive rather than reactive, we've traditionally enjoyed a lot more of inbound deal flow than we have, you know, proactively. Yeah, just because we've had the brand and it was just easy to to just get pipeline to come. But now, as as the asset class gets more competitive and as you know, as the dollar start, you know, as as the you know the dollar is commoditized. So as as we start to compete over what else we can, you know, where else we can add value to founders and just by sheer number of deal flow, we will miss some deals. And I think that's that's a key metric for us. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's you know, it's a fluff metric. To say that you know we've seen X number of founders, the only thing that it indicates is that we have a healthy ecosystem. It's not necessarily a bad thing that we don't invest in these companies. Um, the market will do, you know, whether or not we invest in them might help these companies succeed, but their success is largely the effort of the founders and the founding teams, rather than whether or not they're able to raise for the most part. So you know, the market tends to. You know, let let the market decide who who wins, so to speak. Um, not not the venture capitalists, I think, for the most part. What do you think? Would you say is a successful trait you look for in a founder or founding team? Yeah, I think we talk about that a lot. We actually try to quantify it, and and actually, you know, look at every company in the MENA region, and even and, and even abroad globally that that's you know over a hundred million in, in valuation, let's say, or has X. X amount in revenue or margins or what have you. The common trait is, is, I mean, there's three or four. One is that it's usually a mature founder. So contrary to what a lot of your typical startup weekends will do, which is go to fresh college grads, that that usually doesn't make for a a good founder or founding team. It's a good place to start for that team. But uh, I think a lot of them are uh, experienced. Uh, they've had discipline, discipline jobs around, you know, either management consulting, uh, some banking even, uh, worked at a large corporate, that, and they've had, you know, upper mid-management or maybe even senior roles there where they've, you know, managed teams, they've managed budget, budgets, they've, they've learned to manage the dynamics of markets. Uh, they have industry expertise, so they know what they're doing. I think they've, they've come out of a, of, of a college that's noteworthy of sorts, and usually that's you know, U.S. or, or, or European colleges, um, but that's not exclusively the case. Um, but they also all have a, a, a hunger uh, and, and, and a drive to build something disruptive, not in the sense of, uh, not in a fluffy sense, but in a sense where they, at, at a fundamental level, understand what it means to just kind of bootstrap your way through disrupting an industry. And I say bootstrap is is because a lot of the good companies that we found don't overraise early on. So you tend to find companies with a lot of traction, but then when you look at how much money they've raised, it's actually, you know, a bit offsetting. But but by definition, you know, 
when a founder tries to come to you with a pitch saying, you know, my objective is to disrupt X, Y, Z industry, and they're only raising two or three million dollars, well, that's almost a bootstrap, um, you know, by definition. So, so yeah, so, so they have a knack for that. And if you give some advice to would-be founder looking to raise... Sure. Let's say they have those traits or qualities, yeah. you say. Yeah. What advice would you have for sure. them to go about raising? I think there's three or four things there. One is not to get too greedy on valuation. We always say it's better to under-promise and over-achieve valuation-wise and in terms of how much equity you'll own than the other way around. So, you, you know, as a, as a prospective founder who's looking to raise, do the exercise backwards. Think of the total amount of money you might need over X number of rounds, over seven years, and work your way back saying, this is how much at the end of it I would like to own, plus a large margin, obviously, because you're probably going to be wrong underestimating how much you need. But um, if you do it that way, then you start to think that actually raising at the seed round, don't focus on the valuation of each round independently. The valuation of each round, if looked at independently of what you're going to do next, can actually harm you. Because if you raise a too high valuation, either the follow-on investor is going to eat it and give you a higher valuation at the next round, or the existing investors are going to eat it because they're going to get diluted because it's going to be a down round, or you're going to eat it because neither of those two parties want to compromise and you're going to have to be the one who dilutes. So I think, yeah, you know, don't focus too much on valuation. The investors will reward you if you overachieve by creating an ESOP that's larger than than what you know what what typically would have been at your round if you if you grow faster than you expected you know it's easier to uh, um, to not hit your targets than to hit your targets in this in, in, in this ecosystem so you know better for you to just be safe than sorry I think that's one uh, and another thing that you know focusing on valuation too much. What that does is it, it extends the round um, and the fundraising process for, you know, it drags it for longer than you assumed it would. And that obviously has cash flow burdens on the company. I think another piece of advice is, you know, just, just make sure that just on rights, don't, you know, give up the healthy amount of rights. Don't get too bogged down on, on rights that are insignificant fundamentally just learn to differentiate between what what's a meaningful right that might get exercised versus what's just there for optics maybe don't overcrowd your cap table but sometimes people don't that's you know out of their control i'd say assume that each round of financing will take no less than six months before money gets into your bank up to nine months even so you have to start raising nine months before you actually need the cash and maybe the final piece of advice is take whatever whatever money is on the table even if the money is more than you than you need at the time you never know what's going to happen in in a year two years down the line so so take as much money as you can don't be too bothered with valuation and and give yourself ample amount of time to raise i think that's some great advice let's just shift focus to just a bit about you guys do you guys have any heroes or role models you look up to or like to model in terms of how you do your things? I, I honestly, I mean, I used to look up to a lot of the Silicon Valley type folks, and I do a lot. So there's, you know, obviously the Mark Andreessen type, there's the Jeff Bezos type. But more and more, I've just been fascinated by this decentralized culture of cryptocurrencies. So more the Vitalik Buterin types, you know, Nick Zabo, uh, you know, the, uh, the cypherpunks that, that started out, you know, wanting to build a decentralized internet. So that's... 
That's who I'm looking up to nowadays. Not Tim Draper, like the VCs who go after I, the crypto. I like Tim Draper. I do. Um, you know, as, n- n- on the contrary, I think he's a great guy. But I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just just new blood. So that's that's too typical of a name to give out at this. Khaled. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of people that I that I learn a lot from and like admire and like, you know. But I think it's it's hard to kind of identify a singular hero. Per se, and it's it's not just about like what you're involved in. Like uh, it's hard to kind of point to just a singular person from like you know the world of venture and startups, etc. You know, if, I mean, outside of that world, there's a lot. There's a lot of people to kind of like emulate and think about. Like I'm not just emulate, but like think about like how like just be inspired by their story. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Emily Dickinson, for example, it's like a poet. What, what I particularly admire about her is just she basically. Well, I don't admire this particular fact, but I admire how she translated that into art, which is she effectively shut herself off from the entire world and dedicated herself to her to to her craft. And and the end result is like through that intro. What I do find admirable is through that introspection, she was able to create some incredible poetry, right? Just on the back of of shutting off the world. So she, through shutting off the rest of the world, she was able to really understand the human condition in a way that others don't. Uh, and it's kind of counterintuitive. So in a sense, what I admire most about that is, is not that she became a recluse, that, that in her, she pursued the counterintuitive approach, right, to kind of better understanding ourselves. Um, but that's just kind of like way abstract. But like there's a lot, there's a lot like around that. But I, I tend to kind of shy away from like, this is someone particularly... I mean, there's so many, right? There's so many, like, incredible people. Like, almost, like, to list one or two or three is just doing such a disservice to so many people doing incredible, incredible stuff all over the world right now, right? So, what does your typical day look like? Well, mine is... I get here by 8.30. Between 8.30 and 9.00, and I probably leave towards 7.00-ish. And then... The day is really comprised of kind of three, four elements. A is team-related stuff. So I have to kind of like talk to the team, understand what's going on with the team. Um, there's a little bit of reading, like just kind of knowing what's going on in the world. And then there's um, portfolios of work. Like on, like on any given day, there's something from the companies. There's On any given day, actually, where we are in the cycle now, I would say 50, 60% of my day is actually dealing with company, our companies rela- related. They, they need something, they need help with this. They, you know, there's an issue here, there's something, like a lot of it is that. Um, and then uh, pipeline, where well, the beginning was 90% of my time, has now become really like smaller part of my time. And then last but not least, I do a lot of stuff on fundraising. Uh, fundraising and LP management. So there's a lot of, moving parts to that. Probably the least interesting part of my day is, is that stuff. I mean, apologize to the LPs in advance, but like it's not, it's not the most fun aspect of what we do. Um, so that, that's kind of rough, very rough breakdown, yeah. First? So, you know, I probably got in here about the same time as Khalid, so 8.39. Um, lately, I've, I've been mostly focused on launching some of our new initiatives, like the accelerator and, and, and managing that process, as well as managing some of the stuff we're doing at the platform. 
Um, it's it's the opportune time to do that, uh, first of all, because, you know, it's a bit slow over the summer, so you get to build rather than just kind of be bombarded with all kinds of external engagements. Two is, you know, we're at a, at a cycle where most of our fund is deployed, uh, though we, we do have pipeline that's warehouse for the next fund that we're very excited about. It's a good time to kind of look in, inwards, and, and as Khalid said, so for him, is doing a lot of portfolio work and, and just kind of doing internal kind of brainstorming as to what we want to do as next steps because we are at somewhat of an inflection point now with you know with with regards to what we do at the group i probably leave about the same time uh, i play the guitar a little bit um just go to bed <laughs> that's really about that's it. actually the next question i was gonna ask do yeah. you have a personal routine or hobby you tend yeah. to do right now it's the guitar at some point it was you know the rock climbing uh swimming is, is always there so it's some kind of exercise or excursion yeah, there's always uh, something active that i'm doing yeah it's quite quite similar i think we i used to be quite sedentary actually not move much but the past three years two years two and a half years i've really gotten into kind of working out so i'll like every day not nearly every day not every day nearly every day after work i'll go to the gym i'll go once on the weekend uh, I'll do different things. Like a lot of little bit of weight training, running, like that kind of stuff. Um, and then I also like uh, I've had love hate relationship. I, I I love music. I've had love hate relationship with guitar since I was like fourteen. So I'll go through periods where I'm really into. So you also do. Yeah, Khaled's a really good guitarist. Like you, you have no clue. There's no. He's, he's no, got. A, he's true. got a. Yeah, he's he's always got that to fall back on. No, in case of a, in case of Armageddon or something. Yeah, that's. No, I, uh, He's got that going for him. I wish I wish that was true because maybe I'd go do that. But uh, he, he, they go and I mean, Khaled goes on weekends and they practice in a band of three, I think. Yeah, and they're all the very good. Pose, yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? There's a we great, have a kick-ass drummer. Very Drummer's good drummer, really good. very good multi-instrument guy. So you have a band? Yeah. Well, the band is quite grandiose, just like three guys who... But do they been, have a name? The yeah, name of the band? Yeah, you have a name? No, the only thing we're coming close to is we all, all our names start with the letter K. So it's Khaled, Khaled and Kareem. We're still figuring out the name of the... Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there is an so. option there, but you don't want to go yeah, there. You don't want to go down that route. <laughs> we, yeah. uh, but we, um, we've been playing together since we were f- 15. No, younger, oh. 14. So on you know off. them from... I know wow. them from way back. And oh, it wow. just so happens we all end up How did and I actually went to the same school, yeah. high school and middle school. Really? So, yeah, so, I mean, they, they were notorious for being the best musicians and, and they so happened to be in the same class. Yeah, we had a. We used to do. We were really into it when we were kids, and then it kind of fell. Went to you know when you go to college, just everything falls apart. And then we've just recently started picking it up again. Past year ish. And year somehow now. they also ended up in Dubai. As somehow, well. just pure. Like everyone just pure. either ends up here or <laughs> just rots away somewhere. <laughs> That's but a yeah. Dubai story, right? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Music podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's probably like how I unwind. Like, do you have any favorite ones? I listen to a lot of. Um, I listen to Vox a lot. So Vox, I like a lot. I, I think it shifts depending on when you're asking me. So I, I kind of categorize them into politics, culture, and so either polit- a lot of politics stuff or culture or kind of startup or tech related. On, um, I really like the debate ones, you know, Intelligence Square. I don't know if you know that. I think those are quite good. Um, there's also the original British version, which is the Intelligence podcast which is pretty good which is also sometimes debate driven depends what, what time i just i just got into a new one actually which is incredible and i just i started listening to this weekend called rad awakenings and it's like kind of combining uh, technology and product and, and entrepreneurship but with 
uh, you know, people talking with the the founders or whoever they have on the show talking about kind of life more broad, like you know, their experiences more broadly, and talking about um, kind of themes in their lives. It's, it's it's sort of a broader than just. A, I quite liked it actually. I, I thought. Because if you like the founder stories, there's how it's made. NPR does one called yeah, How yeah, It's Made. Yeah, that is cool. And yeah, Dyson I was, was on that. That was very interesting. Yeah. I was into that for a while. I keep dropping podcasts. I just keep There's actually a so really many. cool one where it tells founding stories or business stories called Business Wars. Have you heard of Business yeah, Wars? Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. It, it's, the way it's told, it gives some excitement, like the story of Netflix versus Blockbuster yeah. versus HBO. Yeah, write this down. It, it's in Business Wars. It, it's really exciting. <laughs> when I first got into podcasts, um, I was listening to a lot of those types of shows. So a lot of stuff that's related to what we do, like the, you know, A16Z podcast and a bunch of the others. I think I just, I just, podcasts are a time for me to kind of just think about something else. So I listen to a lot of Slate Money. That's a really good one. Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, F- Felix Salmon. Uh, the other one that I really like that's sort of techy is Epicenter. It's, it's, uh, it's just about the cryptocurrency space and it's by far the best resource on it. Who's that by? Uh, it's just a couple of guys. Okay. Um, I, I forget their name to be honest, but I mean, if anyone wants to get into crypto in, in a very serious way, just listen to Epicenter. Name, Epicenter, we'll yeah. We'll put that in the notes. And then there's just the, you know, the, um, the typical ones that that just got me into this like serial and and just specifically season one so and we kind of started going to my next set of questions do you have any favorite books is this this doesn't have to be like tech related no no just any favorite books and maybe why why that's why, um, why do you like that book well I, I think something tangential with what we do is my favorite books of all time that i always highly recommend is, is a book das called Kapital. No. <laughs> no, I'd say, I'd say, yeah it could be actually that's that's a, that's not a fun read at all no it's a book called consider phlebas by ian m banks it's a sci-fi novel and it really kind of sets out it's the beginning of a series of novels uh on uh, called the culture, but anyway, why I like that book is it sets out the framework for what would a post scarcity society look like. So um, you know, all of science fiction can be quite kitschy, right? I, I love I love all kinds of science fiction, kitschy and non kitschy, but like particularly some of it can be quite hokey, you know, difficult to get into. Great literary sci-fi is one that kind of it exists to deconstruct the limitations of our current world so that you can explore what could happen either philosophically, societally, economically, politically, etc. When you, when you change different elements of our reality. And in this case? And in this case, it is like basically taking, you know, what does society look like? Far, it's, it's not really set in the future, it's in a different universe or whatever, where, um, you know, a civilization has achieved, or civilizations have achieved post-scarcity. So what, how do you define morality, philosophy within that context? I think that's a great book. I always recommend, because it also lets us think kind of a bit outside the box. It's not so far out there as well. I mean, like Peter Diamandis' yeah. whole exactly. uh, yeah, vision yeah. It's is not, it's about not, abundance. What exactly. if we get to a world without scarcity? And that's why I, I, find, like, I find myself going back to that book and rereading it whenever like, I think about what we're doing here because it's how do you reach that abundance but then what does that mean to reach abundance um, I said top three stuff that I how old is that book to. by the way like, is it late old? 80s late 80s uh, interesting or, uh, and, and then not to go with the poetry theme it's considered Phlebus a reference to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland where there's a Phlebus Phlebus the Phoenician Lebanese guy anyway that's digression. <laughs> the, and then they're the, everywhere yeah, <laughs> the, the other one 
Uh, the other two, I would say, is um, The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, which is a story set in the 1920s. I think it's one of the greatest novels of ever written. It's a story set in the, 20th century, in the uh, early 20th century in uh, communist, in recently turned communist Moscow. And it's about the absurdity of the situation. Um, but because you couldn't write the story normally, you have to write it in a way the censors wouldn't object to. So it takes on this kind of, fa- this kind of fantasy element to it about the devil coming to Moscow at that time and then how people react to that. So it's quite a... It's, it's, it's a great novel because it, it also lets you understand how you push the boundaries without being obvious. And then the third I always recommend is one of the most unloved Shakespeare plays. Like everyone, you know, it's called Cymbeline. It's about King Cymbeline. It's like a British, it's an English. Uh, so why do you love game. it and everyone else well, does I, I, I think it is, but the, the writing is clunky. The narrative is a bit like all over the place, but it tells such a complex story, and it's clearly not as polished as the others, right? Because there's so many kind of narrative threads that go nowhere. But it's one of those stories that has like so many levels of complexity to it that because it's unloved and un well, I wouldn't say it's, I'm not Shakespeare expert, but like I th- you get the sense it wasn't fully formed. But I like that about it that it's not kind of fully formed. But anyway, it's totally unrelated to a subject matter. It's insights into you. So, Faris, do you have any books? Yeah, I mean, since we're doing three, I guess. There's Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami, and, and he's by far one of my favorite uh, um, sort of sci-fi-ish kind of novelists. And, and um, another is, is probably... Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. I just love that and just about... It's a great book. Yeah, that's, that's such a good book. And, you know, it just tells you about this... Well, it says a lot about Truman Capote himself because he's just this, you know, clearly homosexual guy coming from a city in, in the middle of rural America somewhere, in, you know, in the Midwest. And just the clash of cultures at that level and just the fascination he has with with the culture there and... And just the 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 juxtaposition between the you know the depth of of the psychology behind these two murders and just the simplicity of the common folk that live in that town and what struck them was such a surprise and that whole thing was just um, was just one hell of a one hell of a read. I mean, it gets gets a bit boring, but I mean, just if you take it at that level, then it's, then it's interesting. Uh, I think another one you know, is The Book of Dune by Frank Herbert. That's, yeah, that's, that's a, classic, a really good book. Yeah. Um, I think one that maybe like, people would appreciate as well is probably Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, oh, that, yeah, Khaled, Khaled had recommended it a few years ago to me, and I think that just... There's a new one that's, that does that job maybe a bit better. It's called Sapiens. Sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but apparently it does a better job. And Homo Deus, the follow-up. I'm more of a sci-fi slash you know, novel kind of person. I do a little bit of you know, reading these business books, but not too much, to be honest. Okay, now a hypothetical question. If you could post a message on a billboard on Sheikh Saad Road going towards Abu Dhabi, let's say people landed <laughs> from Dubai Airport, that's right? Easy. For the Expo 2020, they're heading towards that yeah, area. That's easy. What, what would you say? I'd just say slow down and drive safe because it's, abs- it's just absurd the way people drive in this town. It, it just scares me. I hate it. You know you're not the first guest on the podcast. Yeah, that's what I would probably say. I mean, I, 
I don't think there's any other message I want to get out to that large of a mass of people doing one thing. Because drivers are a community, right? Like if you're driving on the highway, you're part of this cohort. And the one message to that cohort that I want to get out is just, just calm down. Yeah, I probably agree with that. People need to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to... Yeah, it just gets stressful, I think. So, you know, with Expo 2020 coming and a lot of these different government initiatives going on, if you could propose an initiative to them to undertake, well, like a dream initiative, you know, moonshot type of thing. Yeah. What, what would you like Dubai to do? Just for anything? Like for anything. anything. Like, like anything. I mean, they're already doing kind of out there stuff. Yeah. But let, let's say you like want to The promote. one thing that I would like Dubai yeah. to have. Yeah. Um, well, there's this new, like, there's this new law about, you know, permanent residencies or at least 10-year residencies. There's this local ownership law. I think that would help create a sense of community that's that's to be frank quite absent in Dubai people feel like they're here on just you know in a transient sense uh, not here more permanently but that, that exists would... now so well, or, I mean, or the tenure exist, right the, the, the spillover effect of that or, or the effect of that takes a long time to show but I think that's very important um, what I would like Dubai to do I think just honestly just being a bit on more on the eco-friendly side uh, you know I like it's actually lot, sustainable. Or yeah, actually. like we're the highest rate of car, you know, carbon emissions or carbon consumption on a per capita basis. And it just, and I know we're all part of that and I know it sucks, but it's just, there's something to be done about that, I'm sure. And, and, and you know, that's like, that's, that's on a, yeah, it just, it would help for, for us to see something on that. Khaled, anything? I think they're doing a lot of great stuff, to be honest. Um, Absolutely. I'd, I'd ask for a bit more green space. Yeah, parks. Yeah, we, were, we were talking the other day how like it's so going hard. Going for a walk. Going for a walk is like a thing, right? I mean, now it doesn't work in this type of heat, but like most of the year yeah. you can. That's right. And there are there aren't that many places actually to go for that a walk. That are green as well. Well, there's stuff apart, yeah. but they shut yeah. that down. Well, it's half of it now. Yeah. There's a it's, canal it's now. It's gone. <laughs> I mean, it's like a bit more green space or places where you can... I mean, the beach is great for that, but I wish there was a bit more... Kind of Less small type of walking, yeah. more like you know outdoor. And maybe in a community, like you guys are here in D three. If there was a you know place you guys possibly, could. yeah. I Every mean, community, I think, needs something. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's not a because you don't want to drive out city. to. Yeah, there's, you know, you can go to Business Bay. There's no sidewalks to walk on. There's just like sand pits. So something like that. I mean, it's easier. It's almost like it's a problem, but it's hard to say. Do yeah, but this. that's why it's yeah. a solution. No, no, but that's why it's right. like, you know, it's you, you figure it out. Like, yeah, like, create yeah, floating yeah. Uh, gardens if we have Yeah, to. exactly. <laughs> like, let's not, let's yeah, not keep building buildings. Let's think about actual, like, other yeah. types of infrastructure, I guess. And uh, is there any piece of advice you would give your 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now, or all the experience you've had, rewind and talk to yourself? I mean, if I, if I gave myself advice i wouldn't be who i am today i guess because <laughs> <laughs> i'd probably change um were you subscribed to that sci-fi or do you, would it be a parallel universe where I'd you're probably, telling <laughs> to be completely honest probably push myself a lot more to get into music school and go down that path and just i've always had this dream to be a film composer and that's what i really wanted to do but i just just it just required way too much dedication for me at that age that I was just like, ah, you know, I'll just figure it out. And, you know, one thing led to the other and, and, and that's it. I mean, I, I, I love what I do today. Um, don't get me wrong, but at that time, I think the, the kind of admiration I have for the founders that come in and pitch to us is that, you know, they've got their mindset on something 
um, if I could go back in time and tell myself, you know, if you have your mindset on that, it's never too late. Because at 20, you think you're, you know, it's too late. But that's like 10 years ago. And that was, for me at least, and and that was just prime. You know, I could have been a, a composer for, you know, film now or something. So I'd probably do that. Interesting. Khaled, any advice to Khaled? I'm not sure. I think 20-year-old Khaled had like, very lofty ideas but something I, I guess struggle with sometimes is kind of the idea of and I was listening to this on a podcast as well the idea of what defines happiness and contentment like what actually does make you happy in your professional life and your personal life I would have spent more time as a 20 year old thinking through you know the next 10 years how do I how do I achieve that on a, on, as a going concern as a day-to-day basis rather than just kind of constantly thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next and being anxious about that. Just being more of a strategic planner, you mean? Or? No, it's more like what, what's going to drive my... If I... To project... Yeah, maybe there is some, some of that, like planning, but planning for personal... Your own tenure plan. Oh, I see what yeah, you mean. Like yeah, like yeah. what, what am just I going to do in my, in my life, professionally, personally, everything, like, you know... Gonna... Do you think you had the answer at 20? I mean, do you think you would have been no, able to... No, I wish I just thought about it a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. rather than, all right, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to finish the semester, Figure I'm going to graduate, yeah. and I'm going to do, yeah. I'm going to keep pushing, pushing, move, and it's almost like, you know, you get bogged down in that day-to-day rather than... And you stand up here. <laughs> you wake up yeah. and you're here. Which, which is great. I mean, like, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, but it's about, like, how do you define your... I mean, without this sounds incredibly pretentious and, and corny, but like, how do you define your journey in a way that you know every day is another step towards that type of feeling of self-contentment? I don't know, I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, but it's something I was thinking no, about. No, it makes sense. You're setting your path towards yeah. Think what you more want about think more about what is it you really want to achieve. What will ultimately make you happy? Longevity of it. I think a lot of founders we meet um, have that. Um, you clearly have, see have, they have I that. Think they, yeah. I think they do. I think a lot of the founders we've seen have always had a sense of that at least, and you could almost instantly tell if someone's. Someone's kind of yeah. had that or not, I think. I think, um, yeah, I think you do see it, actually. You're right. Yeah. Founders always kind of wonder about Not all. That. I mean, I, th- I think not yeah, all. Yeah, I don't think all of them. A lot of the time, like, the successful ones are just, when you speak to them, it's like, they know it, they've known it, they've had it in them for a certain, you know, t- to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't believe in free will to that extent. I don't think if I were to go back that, you know, given all the ingredients at the time, I would have been able to do... That I think there's just way too much to preoccupy me at that moment that I wouldn't have been able to do that, even if I were to go back and tell myself that. You wouldn't be able to change. Yeah, there's just way too much going on. It's just too much stimulus. You know, being in a new city, what am I going to do? There's just a lot of stimulus that's just new. And you were in L.A., right? Yes, yeah, I was in Los Angeles, yeah. That was like, you know, enjoying that and the moment of that was just enough for me to not think about the long term too much I guess and uh, just lastly where can our listeners go to find more information about either you guys or yeah oh well we have our twitter handle so wamdami at wamdami is the is the larger group's um, uh, handle at wamda capital is is the wamda capital twitter handle Um, they could reach me at f-a-r-e-s so that's faris at wamdacapital.com and I'm just always happy to to respond to anyone's email or anything. 
Yeah, same. I mean, my email is Khalid at Womda, Khalid with an E at WomdaCapital.com. So uh, it's an easy place to reach me. Not LinkedIn because like that's... Uh, yeah, LinkedIn is... Yeah, a lot of people stunned. send in mail and I check it once a week and I just feel bad for not responding in time. So, Well, thank you guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks so that. much. That was a lot of fun. Actually. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash WAMDA. That's W-A-M-D-A. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.